This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. Today we have a, a special guest, Dr. Jim Heiss, the Chief Medical Officer at Door County Medical Center. And uh, I, I wanted to have him on the podcast today to kind of give us a, a baseline of where we're at in Door County as the number of cases has really skyrocketed. Um, we're starting to see hospitalizations again. And at the same time, it comes at a, a moment when people are maybe letting up on their um, being careful about the virus. So I, I wanted to have him on, not necessarily like to to scare people or anything, but just to say like, all right, what's the the realistic situation of where we're at? What should people be thinking about? And how should we be acting? Um, so Dr. Heiss, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me and, and welcome again to the Door County Pulse podcast. Thank you. Great to be with you, Miles. Um, you know, there's probably nothing more important for us to talk about right now. So I'm glad you are here. Um, yeah. One thing, uh, just start off, like, where are we at right now in Door County? As of yesterday, we're, I think we're up to about 389 total positive test results, but almost three out of four of those have come in the month of September. So kind of lay the groundwork for everybody. Yeah, well, what's interesting is is uh, the Door County total is, as you say, it's uh, 389. Um, we actually, and that's, that's positives attributed to Door County residents. Um, what, on my numbers for Door County Medical Center, we do, we do for the most part, all the testing in the county. We actually are at 410. And the reason that we're at 410 is because we have some, you know, Kiwani County folks, because we have a clinic in Algoma. Kiwani County folks will do it. We have some people from outside the county that will come up um, uh, for whatever reason they're visiting. Uh, so we're at 410. But but yeah, we've had a really dramatic uptick in the number of in the number of cases. I mean, you look at a graph, and it literally it looks like a rocket launch um, from September, even from September first until where we are now. It's it's you know it's amazing. So and we're we're at about you know currently you know I would say we're we're at uh, a full one quarter of the patients that we test are positive. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. Um, what can you kind of give us a typical read on what these cases are? Are these mild? Are these severe? Um, what are the what are the symptoms that people are feeling when they're getting these positive tests? You know, we're, we've been fortunate here, and I've been saying it in other platforms as well. And I always feel a little bad saying it because I don't I don't want to understate, but I think it's important just to state the reality, which is so far everyone that I, I call the positives and everyone that I have spoken to um, have had for the most part, what I would characterize as mild symptoms. And by that, I mean, they'll say, you know, I've, I've got a little, I've got a cough. I, the biggest thing is people say they are completely wiped out. They're very fatigued. They sometimes have body aches. Fever is a part of it. A lot of loss of taste and smell. Um, a lot of people have later saying that they're having sinus congestion and things like that. So it, it, it makes it it makes it confusing because some people will say, you know, I, I, I tend to get this or I tend to get a fall cold every year about now. And that's what it feels like. And they'll get tested for various reasons. You know, like they, they're worried about family or something and they'll end up being positive. Um, so on the one hand, that's really good that we've, we have a lot of mild illness. The downside of it is, is that you just don't know those cases that could become bad. We have had over the last seven days, we've had four hospitalizations, which, you know, that's the most we've ever had in the hospital at one time. We currently have three in the hospital. Um, they're generally doing well, I'm happy to report. 
Um, but nonetheless, that's the case. And really what I'm starting to do, what we're doing here at Door County Medical Center is we're really trying to look at what can we do right now as a community and as a hospital to to mitigate what's going on in Green Bay. I mean, as I think everyone has heard, Green Bay is really uh, in kind of a world of hurt right now. They either are at or are or, or very close to capacity in almost all the hospitals in Green Bay. You know, and that directly affects care that our local residents could have. You know, someone, if Green Bay is, is at capacity because of a, a COVID situation and someone comes into RED and they're having a heart attack, it may delay the definitive care that they need to get. You know, and, and you know, I, I I don't say that to scare people, but I think that really is a big consideration when people are thinking about how it is they're going to go about and, and go about their lives and behave. Well, maybe give a little detail, more detail on how that works. I, I did happen to talk to a, a doctor recently who kind of explained this to me because I look at the data and as a layman, I was like, the Northeast region is what we fall into in Door County in terms of Correct. recording hospital data and how they, the state looks at capacity issues. Now, right. we're a little different in that we're on this peninsula. So I was, and when they define Northeast region, they go back up the bay on the other side of the bay and include Green Bay. And I'm thinking, okay, is that really relevant? Is that the same as some of these other places where they can go in all directions? We can only go in one direction south. So is that an accurate read? But talking to this doctor, he said, you really have to include Green Bay. That's our hub system. And when we we're a great hospital, but for severe cases, like you said, like a heart attack, things like that, we then transport them to Green Bay. And if there's not a bed available, that that slows down care, like you just said. Is that an accurate reading of like why those Green Bay numbers matter so much to and should matter to people in Door County? Absolutely, it does. And, and the reason is, is because we can do a lot of stuff here at our hospital. You know, we, we're not just a critical access hospital. We really are a full functioning community hospital. But the reality is, um, not just us, but other hospitals our size, we do not have a cardiac catheterization lab. So the ability to go in and catheterize and look at the heart vessels and put a stent in if someone's having a heart attack, we don't have the ability to um, operate on the brain if someone's having a brain bleed or something like that. There's a lot of things that we just simply cannot do because we're a small hospital and you can't possibly have all those specialists in a rural area. And so if you come in with one, with one of those issues, that's where you might get less than optimal care. You know, I, I, I certainly a person could perhaps be transferred to Milwaukee or, or, you know, even the Fox Valley though is in trouble as well. So that's, that's the big issue. And again, you know, I, I, I'm every, I have every confidence that we can take good care of people regardless and we can get them to the places they need to go, but it, it won't be as otherwise efficient as it usually is because let's face it, when someone has a heart attack, you really are looking at uh, measures like door-to-balloon time, we, we call it, which is from the time you hit our door and you're having a heart attack to the time you actually get a catheter up there and you balloon up, balloon open a vessel, what's that balloon time? And, and it can be prolonged, not to our benefit. So, so their numbers directly affect us. Well, and, and I can speak from personal experience there. Back in May, in the, the early days of, of COVID, my own mother had a heart attack and ended up having six stents put in. And she went to Door County Medical Center. They took great care of her, but they had to send her down to St. Vincent's. At that yeah. time, there weren't a ton of cases up here. So it was a pretty easy transition to make. And she did great after that. Um, I picked her up 36 hours later um, at the front door of the hospital and was stunned at how good she was doing. Um, but it's right now, I would I would be much more concerned. And I don't want to put fear in people's uh, minds there. But the, the reality is, if as numbers go up, like that might be a whether it's 10 minutes longer, 20 minutes longer to get to the right spot to get care, those those minutes matter. 
it, it does. And you know, and I what one of the things that I hear folks mention quite frequently, not you know, some not everyone, but you know, some folks that tend to be more suspicious of of everything surrounding COVID, you know, sort of say, well, look, the mortality rate is super low. You know, so what's the big deal? And I sort of say, yeah, you know, it is really low. And I'm really glad that it's really low, at least, you know, around here and in general, it's really, really low. But the reality is when people come in with it, when people come in sick, it still is a is a uh, a use of resources. And that's what's going on right now in Green Bay is that those resources are being stretched to the maximum. And we even see that here with testing site and public health is stretched to the max. And it's very resource intensive. So whether someone is, is going to die of this or not, while that's very important and we want to minimize that, it's, it's not the whole story. Well, and when you talk about whether someone's going to die about uh, from this, like generally what I, th- I think this is another thing I want to talk about today is kind of that going back to the early days of this, when we didn't necessarily know a lot of the best ways to treat it. We didn't know what we were facing. We didn't know how to isolate these patients. And if what was happening in hospitals, and correct me if I'm wrong, was like in New York and other places where they were getting a hit and hit hard, they couldn't give them the care that you need to beat this disease. And, and that's usually people. As much as we talked about ventilators and, and ICU units, it's number of people you have to take care of that person. So your mortality Absolutely. rates are higher if you don't have the people to go around. And we've been fortunate in that when people do get sick, we have enough people to help them. Is that an accurate characterization? Yeah, that's very accurate. That's very accurate. And in fact, you know, we, we know a lot more now than we did then. And the reality still exists that there's really not. Um, there, we have options now of things to do for folks that, that are sick with COVID, but none of them have demonstrated complete effectiveness. So while we're doing things like the antiviral remdesivir, we're doing convalescent plasma um, because they don't, there doesn't seem to be a harm, a downside to those, there's not convincing data that those things particularly make a difference, um, uh, at, least, at least, you know, in a measurable way. I mean, I think we've seen, I personally think that they, the, the remdesivir seems to help a little bit at shortening stays, but you know, we're still in that same boat, but you're exactly right. I mean, at the time that back in the, the winter and spring, the conversation was about ventilators. Well, we initially, it was the plan up here was early ventilation, get people on ventilators and try and rest their lungs and save their lungs. Well, we quickly realized from experience that that's the absolute wrong way to go that we want to keep people off ventilators as long as we possibly can. So, um, you know, so, and it is, it does come down to the number of staff that you're dealing with. It doesn't have so much to do with the equipment. And some of those ways that you keep them off ventilators, there are ways to put people in a prone position so they can breathe easier to loosen the pressure on the lungs, that kind of thing is, and then, um, and if correct me if I'm wrong again, but um, from what I understand is one of the problems with putting people on ventilators is that, yes, you can you can help rest their lungs. But you're also when you do that, you shut down a lot of other system, symptoms or systems. And then what we found out is that this virus affects so many other organs other than just the lungs, which is where right. they were targeted early on again for. Correct me if I'm wrong on that at all. I don't want to give misinformation. No, generally you're right. Generally you're right. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's it's not so much that putting someone on a, on a ventilator um, causes other organ systems, but it 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 seems that it doesn't. You know, I think one of the things we're beginning to understand more about this disease process is if you have really severe disease, what tends to happen is the it's not the virus that's killing people; it's the body's immune response to the virus that that's causing problems. And so 
you hear about these things called cytokines, which are inflammatory mediators that the body puts out when it's it's met with a, uh, an invading force, so to speak. And what can happen when in, in an exuberant response of, of cytokines is all of a sudden you literally get almost gook in the lungs. I mean, it literally almost, it's not pus, but it's almost like that. And it really limits the, the lung's ability to exchange oxygen into the blood. And so ventilation doesn't seem to help that all that much. And so what we're trying to do is is find ways around that. And there are you know, anti-inflammatory treatments and things that, that can be utilized uh, to help that. The good news, though, that I will say is that, you know, when we first had our initial patients, our first three, all of whom died, had that, where their lungs literally, they were in bad shape. None of them were ventilated because they didn't want to be ventilated on a, on a mechanical ventilator. We did use what we call non-invasive ventilation, which is high-flow oxygen and, and hmm. pressure oxygen therapy. Um, but nonetheless, they, they still succumb to the illness. Now, we're not seeing that you know, since that time, and I think in general there's, there's less of those. I mean, obviously elsewhere in the state and the country, people are still dying of this disease. There's no question. But, but what I really think is happening, at least to some degree, is if masking is good for anything, which I do, I think it's a good thing, if masking is good for anything, it seems to be getting us a lower concentration of virus in, which we call the inoculum. So if you're wearing a mask and the person that, that you, you know, you're with is wearing a mask, even if you somehow get virus through both masks to you, which can happen, no one's ever said masking is perfect, you get much less of a dose. And I think as a result of that, people are just getting less sick. Whereas the people initially that were so sick, they were just you know, full out open to it, you know, uh, and and uh, got a really whopping dose. And that's when the body really took over and had a really exuberant response, which caused a lot of problems. I mean, as a very crude comparison, it's kind of like if, you're, if your kid swallows just a tiny bit of a poison versus the whole can of off, like you, you're going to have a different yeah. reaction there. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and the other thing with masking that, you know, people think of it as a confusing directive. There's still some people who are very anti-mask. Um, yeah, I still talk to restaurateurs all the time, which where they're getting people say like just screaming at, at hostesses about wearing masks and you can't make me do this kind of thing. But yeah. if we go back to the beginning, one of the reasons, something I've explained to people is the reason they were saying no masks was mainly for two things. They didn't know about asymptomatic spread. So it only made sense to wear a mask if you, if you had it, just like if you had the flu it's generally right. a spread through uh, a, a very symptomatic, a very sick person. In so they didn't know that it could be spread asymptomatically, and they also didn't. They're they're in the back of people's minds was there's not a lot of masks to go around, and we got to save those for the people who need them. Right. The difference became a once we ramped up to production of masks and realized that any sort of covering might be helpful, and then the fears of and the the data that came in. I shouldn't say fears. The data that came in that showed that there was asymptomatic spread is yep. again is that. An accurate character, and I think people look at it as like, well, they said no mass, then they said mass, and that's all. It's all just like a guess, but that's not really the case. Yeah, that's exactly right, and you know, and and you're, yeah, you're spot on. I mean, the the initially, you know, we we were, you know, the healthcare community was confusing the heck out of people and the CDC because initially we said, hey, no mask. And I, some of my first Facebook lives, I said, look, you, there's no need to wear a mask. It's not going to help you because again, if someone had symptoms, then yeah, but. As you said, we didn't realize there was an asymptomatic situation where virus was being shed during an asymptomatic or sometimes what we call a pre-symptomatic uh, stage. We didn't understand that. And so then we changed our, we sort of changed our mind, quote unquote, 
but then people said, well, you know, you, you, first you said it was bad, now you said it was good, so which is it? We don't really believe you anymore. And kind of what I said to people is, look, this is the nature of science. I mean, science is one of those things where you have, you, you have a hypothesis, you look for data to support your hypothesis, and it has to be a repeatable thing. You have to be able to repeat the experiment you're doing under different conditions, and it has to be you know, continually the case. So that's how science works. And so masking ended up with this asymptomatic spread being a reasonable thing to do. I don't think anyone has ever uh, tried to come across and say it's a perfect solution because it's not. I mean, does it really stop disease? No, it doesn't. Um, but I think what we learned pretty quickly is that it seems to lessen it uh, fairly well. Um, so, so yeah, it's like anything else. You know, we so many other illnesses that have been out there in the medical world, we've known for decades or even centuries about. This one we've known for eight months. <laughs> so, you know, give us a few more weeks, and we will 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 know. I mean, I'm a big facetious, of course, but we'll we'll know more. So, we really are learning as we're going. Yeah, and and I the, the comparison I look to like the. the the last health crisis that was in any way as as um, rampant as this in the U.S. and this it, it didn't affect nearly as many people. But if I think back to when I was growing up in the '80s with the AIDS crisis, and yeah. people tend to think we should have all the answers now, but you got to remember, I think you're talking ten years be the AIDS was around in the U.S. before Magic Johnson got it, and that was kind of the first time people said hmm, this isn't just a gay disease. I, I shouldn't right. say the first time, but that's when the mass populace really realized that. That took 10 years exactly. for people to realize that and for people right. to start using condoms. And that sort of like mass, that really slowed the growth of the disease. Um, and there was so much we learned and we still don't have a cure for that. It's been around for nearly 40 years. Um, yeah. So, and we only now have really good treatments for it. But when Magic Johnson was diagnosed, I thought I was going to be bawling seeing one of my favorite athletes die within six months to a year. Um, yeah. He's still with us because we learned a lot. But exactly. just a few years earlier, it was a death sentence. So, you know, that that kind of, to me, that's a good example of how long it really does take to learn about stuff, even when you're set throwing the, the whole might of our medical community at something. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny. I, I think on my, the Facebook live that Sue Powers and I did on Monday, someone took, took uh, umbrage to the fact that I, you know, I said, oh, we're comparing HIV to, to COVID now. And the point wasn't that at all. It was really to what you're talking about is I think we're going to have to, in many ways, learn to live with COVID. And, and, and uh, HIV has gone nowhere. I mean, it, it's, it's the same place it's been 40 years ago. But the, as you said, we have ways to literally live with it now. And it's no longer a deadly disease. And so, and I think, I don't, you know, it's not going to take that long for us to get on top of COVID that way. But I think, you know, I think eventually we'll, we'll have a vaccine and, and it seems to be that way. And, and, uh, and we'll get on top of this. But in the meantime, if people can just put up with wearing masks, you know, and, and distancing on, on the short term, I think that that's going to get us further. I also think it's ironic that the same people that really don't want to mask and don't want to socially distance and they want to do what they want to do, they're actually the ones that are prolonging this. I mean, unfortunately, mm -hmm. and maybe, and, and perhaps unwittingly, I mean, you know, so um, it, uh, it, you know, it's, it's kind of a shame in that sense. And, you know, it goes back to the concept of, you know, I've heard it said too, um, well, I don't, I'm, I don't need to wear a mask. I'm, I, if I get this disease, it's on me. I'm fine. I, I, I appreciate the risk, but, and, but what the point that they're missing is, you know, your inaction affects a lot of people. So if all of a sudden you end up getting symptoms and you get tested and you're positive, now you've got to see who were you around for the last, you know, five, six days. And it ends up being 20, 30 people that could end up being positive, or even if they're not positive, they're quarantined for 14 days. So you're, the, the steps you take or don't take can really have a downstream effect on people. 
Yeah, and, and shut down businesses and shut down livelihoods and affect mental health, all those things. Um, right, exactly. Well, let's talk about what people should be doing. Um, you know, like there's people have loosened up. I'm myself have loosened up, you know, from those days where I was just sitting in my, my house basically all day recording and writing from in here. But yeah, um, and I feel fairly comfortable, you know, going to an outdoor bar setting where things are spaced out and where people seem to be wearing masks and servers are wearing masks. I, I have not gone inside at a restaurant. Um, what, what are the precautions people should be taking? What's a, what's a fair measure of risk in general? I know everyone has to kind of make that choice for themselves, but like, what's the way to go about your day and mitigate risk and still live something close to normal? Yeah. And I think that, uh, the things you mentioned, if we, you know, like going back to the old three things, the same old three things, which is wear a mask when you're with, when you're, when you're in public, um, uh, try and stay physically distant about six feet away and, uh, um, and wash your hands frequently. I think if we do those things and we apply those three tenets to what we do, we can go on about our lives. I mean, I, I sort of said from the beginning and I, you know, I initially, I was a little concerned on some of the Facebook lies and things that I was doing that I was coming across as a little too cavalier because that wasn't my intention. But I basically was saying, look, I have never washed down my groceries. I mean, I don't think that's necessary. I really don't. Right. I mean, one-tenth of one percent comes from contact. This is a respiratory illness primarily. So I think you mentioned, you know, if you want to go to a bar and if it's outside and if you can stay separated, that's great. If you want to go to a, an establishment where they are packing people in even outside, you got to be careful about that because what we know to be true, especially right now in Green Bay is and here as well, where these cases, these outbreaks are happening because of social gathering. That is precisely where they're happening. And we're talking about things like family reunions, social events, weddings, things like that. And not that those things can't happen, but those things have to happen in an intelligent way. So if you're going to, you've had your wedding plan for two years, that's terrific. No one's saying cancel your wedding. We're just saying, you know what? You're having a COVID wedding. This is something you're going to talk about with your kids. You should be wearing masks. You should have your guests separated the best you can. If you do that, you're going to be just fine. You know, uh, so a lot of it is, you know, so I, I am one that does not, I don't think there's any reason to look at closing down an economy again. I just don't see it. I think that, I think that if we were all smart about it, that, that uh, um, I can do just fine. Now, some might say, well, that's the problem is that people are choosing, they're making bad choices and they're going to force, you know, they're going to force government's hand and we're going to have to be closed down. Well, I hope that doesn't happen. Right. So, I, you know, I, I think, you know, even going to a restaurant, I think if you go to a restaurant and you go there and as long as the staff is masking, you know, and, and they're, they've separated, you know, I've, I was at a, I've been to a couple of restaurants. I went on a vacation in July to, uh, to this park in Colorado. And we flew Delta to get there, and Delta Airlines—they got it going on. Not to plug an airline, but they—they're no middle seats. They—they they separate people. Masking is required. You know, I felt completely safe on that airplane. Now, is that a risk? Yes, it was a risk I was willing to take. You know, a couple of restaurants that we went into, they—they they removed tables. So I think if you go into a restaurant or you go into a business where you see people not masking or you see people not—you—they're cramming them in as usual. I would say those are the places where you, you turn around and you walk out because that's not a smart move. And I also think, you know, businesses in the community that are doing that sort of thing, they're not masking, they're not separating, they're not helping their community. And, and you know, they need to be thinking about more than just their bottom. I mean, the bottom line is always important, but there's long-term versus short-term gain. Well, and also, I think doing those things is thinking about the bottom line, because the quicker yeah. we figure out the ways to to live with this and make people feel comfortable, the more people like myself and others are going to be willing to come out and spend their dollars. Yeah, yeah, I look at my parents. Um, there are people who would normally eat out several times a week, 
And um, throughout this, they haven't been able to do that unless I've taken them to a place where there's a, a distanced patio or we get takeout food. And that's a lot of money that they would otherwise, and they're not like big spenders. They're not going to high end places, but you know, you're talking 50 to hundred bucks a week or more going into yeah. restaurants, probably much more than that actually, and circulating throughout the economy. Um, right. That as long as when people say, well, we just need to protect the old people and protect the vulnerable. A, we don't actually know everyone who's vulnerable. There's a lot of people who exactly. don't know they have a condition. And then B, if you're talking about the old people in Door County, you're talking about most of the people who do the things that we need to evolve or to, to function. Like most of our boards are made up of people over the age of 65. I yep. think the average age on the Sturgeon Bay Common Council is about 73. If, uh, if you look at most of the nonprofit boards, you're talking about people over the age of 65. If you talk about our volunteer base, the people who go out and and work for neighbor to neighbor or volunteer at our events like the Door County Half Marathon, the the Fall Challenge, all these silent sports events that bring a lot of younger people up, they're staffed primarily by older volunteers at those aid stations. So yep. if you are saying like they should be locked away somehow to protect themselves and we should all just do our thing, you're going to stop all the things we like to do. I mean, go to any event, go to Peninsula Players, Door Community Auditorium, concerts. If you look at who's handling the parking, it's not young people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, if, we, if we're going to function, if we're going to return to normal, we have to figure out ways that we can live responsibly, responsibly and protect everybody. And that yeah. doesn't take That's, a lot. Like you said, it takes a mask. It takes right. being a little more conscious. So, yeah. And I, I, you know, for me, you know, my, my heart aches. I, I tend to be um, a theater and a symphony kind of person. I'm one of those nerds. And um, um, I, uh, uh, I, it just, it, my heart aches every time I see, you know, like I know Peninsula players um, um, talking with Brian Kelsey. I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, um, you can't run a theater like this right now. And so the faster we can get past this and to learn to live with it, the faster those folks can get back going. You know, you look at Broadway in New York, you look at any symphony, it's very difficult to, to do those things. And and those are just a small examples, but, but there's many like that sporting events. There's many things like that. And so I guess I look at it, I think from a practical perspective, let's see if we can get on top of this so we can get back to those things that we all enjoy doing. And so I think um, by saying, you know what, screw it, we're just going to go ahead and uh, and do football games anyway and have people on the stands. I'm seeing high school football events that are happening that way, which just blows my mind. You know, I, I think if we can just take the short-term pain you know, and this is not truly, I don't, I mean, this is not a political argument. I mean, I don't know how all of a sudden this turned into, um, um, this is a game of sides. You're on this side or that side. This is, I don't, I don't understand how that happened, but you know, social media certainly hasn't helped, but, but, um, you know, it's, it's all, it's all very interesting. And I think we're all going to have learned an awful lot about things after this is all said and done. Yeah. Um, you know, let's talk about testing. When should people get tested? How does it work? when to quarantine and how the quarantine should work. And I know maybe that falls a little bit more on public health, but if you can, if we can talk no, through that I'm a little bit. To, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, so uh, testing right now, we're, we're not testing asymptomatic people unless they are a close contact. So right now we're testing people that have symptoms or that have been told that they're a close contact. Um, uh, so that, that's the basic thing. So I wouldn't, we don't, we don't at the current time, we don't, we're not set up to say, oh, I just feel like getting tested to see whether or not I, I might have it or not. Um, you know, if we had unlimited resources, maybe we would do that. But at this point, that that's not the case. So when someone tests positive, I call them and I give them that result. And I say, okay, you need to quarantine now 10 days from either the date of your first symptoms 
or from the date of the test that you took. I mean, if you're a close contact, let's say, and had no symptoms. So 10 days, that's your quarantine. At the end of that 10 days, as long as your, your symptoms are gone and you have no fever, it does not require medication to keep the fever down, then you can go out of quarantine. So that, that actually, in my mind, is you know, not, not to be cavalier, but that is the easy track because you, you've got it, you get through it, you move on. Now, most people that are positive have had close contacts. They've been with someone. So a close contact is defined as someone who is, you've been within six feet of them for 15 minutes or more, which can be either at, a, at one time or cumulative over the course of like a shift or a day. So if you're within six feet of that person for 15 minutes or more, you are considered a close contact. Now, the close contact has to quarantine for 14 days, generally counted from two days before that person's symptoms or before their test because they could have been asymptomatic before either one of those. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that makes it more interesting, which I tend to think is a little bit of overreach, but what, what public health has been saying and what the CDC and the Department of Health Services says is your 14-day quarantine begins after your last contact with that person. So if, you, if that person was tested and had symptoms seven days ago, but your last contact was yesterday, your 14-day quarantine starts today. Hmm. That's how that works. So it can end up being 7 plus 14 or 10 plus 14. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but that, that's what can happen. So, I, you know, I, I've, I've sort of been saying tongue-in-cheek to people, you know, the, the close contact is what you don't want to be because it really is, it can really affect your ability to work, to make a living, um, things like that. And, and so that, again, goes back to the concept of if you're one that says, I'm just going to be, it's on me if I get sick. Well, you could be really adversely affecting a lot of other people that you didn't mean to adversely affect. Yeah, that's a great point. Like you, you may not think that the quarantine is warranted, but you know, the five people that you work with are trying to follow that rule and, and be safe, but, and, and now they're stuck because you, you didn't do the right thing. Um, yeah. Where I've talked to a lot of restaurant owners where they get confused is that close contact rule because anyone who's worked in a restaurant kitchen, you know, yeah, you 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 don't you almost have to assume that like everybody that you were in that kitchen with should be considered right. a close contact. Um, right. And in many cases, that hasn't been the guidance that they've been given. So that's been part of the confusion is maybe a, a lack of understanding of how those kitchens work because you know some of these like it's impossible to be six feet away from someone in some of these kitchens. So um, right, exactly, exactly. It, it it becomes really tough. So then some people ask like. Well, public health, they shut you down. No, public health isn't telling you to shut down. It's the reality of running a restaurant that is making people right. shut down because even in a good year, people don't have enough staff. Most of the time, the That's owner right. is constantly filling in for somebody and always down a couple of people. So now you take away the 500 J1 workers that would normally be here. And mm, then yeah. and then you take a lot of people out of the workforce in intermittent periods because of positive testing. Um, and it's it's just impossible. You lose one person, let alone a couple of close contacts. That's why these places are shutting down. I mean, it's, exactly it's mainly right. a staffing issue. Um, yeah, public health has public health has closed no business down so far during this pandemic. So it's been just as you describe. I mean, it's been just they just don't have staff to run their shop, and that's that's how that works. Um, we talked about how it's spreading. Um, I know that there's still some people who say, oh, it's these, these greedy business owners who are staying open. Um, I'll get into that in a different podcast, but like the business owners, they do have to try and find a middle ground of guarding right. public health and paying their mortgage. <laughs> um, right, exactly. It, it may be news exactly. to a lot of people, but like the businesses don't have a slush fund up here in most cases. Right, um, right. So, but then the, what we've seen is there's not a lot of cases tied specifically to the way a restaurant or business has operated. Like you said, it's, it's small gatherings, it's weddings, it's family events, private events. Um, yeah. 
So as much as people want to, at least on social media, put it all on on bars and business owners. And in many cases, like bar situations, I, w- I wouldn't go into a crowded bar late at night right now. But right. but that so far has not been the biggest driver. It's And it's not necessarily tourists that are making this happen. It's, you know, responsibility falls on us. Um, That's right. And then and another thing is you, people, a lot of people talk about herd immunity. Um, I've had some business owners even this week say to me, like, you know, we're all going to get this. We... I'm not taking precautions because we all got to get this at some point and we just need to get herd immunity and that's what's going to make it go away. What's the response to that? Um, you know, I, I, I struggle with that uh, only from the perspective that, you know, there's a, there's a certain truth to, to herd immunity. The difficulty is, and this is where I struggle, this is the part that I struggle with, is so you say that. The problem is, is that um, how... Oh, First of all, so let let it run rampant. That that sort of assumes then, in my mind, that you have to ignore when people are positive and just let it keep happening. So how many how many deaths is okay? Even though we're seeing mostly mild illness, which is again I keep saying that's really a good thing. But how many deaths is okay? So if you say, well, you know, it's important that that kids play high school football and then because it's good for their self-esteem and it's good to get exercise and things like that. And you have people in the stands. How many kids is an example? And I don't say this to try and, you know, pull heartstrings, but how many, you know, if one kid dies, is that okay? You know, and, and again, and I always go back to the, I'm a big risk guy. It's like everything is, life is, is, is we don't, we don't assess risk very well as human beings and, and, and everything that we do has a certain risk associated with it. So I think that's part of the discussion. I also think that, from what I've understood, and I will admit to not being an expert on, on truly what herd immunity is, I think a lot of people throw that out there, and they, like me, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, I think, uh, you know, in medicine, and I, there are people throw that out, and they're throwing it out based on no knowledge or based on what they've seen on social media, which is the same as no knowledge. You know, so a lot of it is just, well, yeah, it makes sense, herd immunity, let's just, let's just go for that. You know, that's not entirely wrong, but there's, there's complications that can go. And there's a lot of discussion about is herd immunity 70 or 80% of people being positive or is it 20% because of T-cell immunity? There's all these different things you have to think about. And our best minds in, in, in medicine in this country don't have a great answer. So if someone, you know, decides, you know, at, 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 you know, at some business in Door County that they have the answer, they probably don't. You know, because, you know, and, not, not, and maybe they do, I don't know. But I mean, you know, there's, I, there's a lot of unknown, you know, as far as, you know, after you've gotten COVID, how long are you immune? Are you immune at all? Is it is it going to be a lasting immunity? Is it going to be a short-term? We just don't know those answers. And so, you know, give it time and we will. But I think there's, there's too many possible downsides to just letting it rip. So, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I sort of, I, I kind of quibble with the idea, well, everyone's going to get it. I don't know if that's true or not. I, mean, I don't think that's the case that back during the Spanish flu of 1918, not everyone got Spanish flu, you know, so I don't think that's exactly accurate. Um, you know, what, I've, what I understand of herd immunity is most of the time in the medical community and amongst epidemiologists and people who specialize in pandemics, when they talk about herd immunity, they're actually talking about it in the context of, of, of having a vaccine in, yeah. in terms of you get that many people with the vaccine, that creates the herd immunity, so you don't need 100% vaccination, you need a certain percentage and that, that eventually just kills the spread of it. Because, you know, if you're in a room and seven out of 10 people have the vaccine and one person gets the virus and it, it just has nowhere to go, you know, and you you extrapolate that to 300 million people and that's how it, it dies off. It just doesn't have a a way to spread in a community unless it hits a community where 99% of people aren't vaccinated. Well, it's going to go rampant in that community. Um, that's the, the understanding of how that, when they talk about that, 
They're talking about it in the, in the context of a vaccine. Now, if you talk about that without a vaccine, you become, from my understanding, is you become New York, where the early days, you have it run rampant with none of the precautions in place. And remember, when it went nuts in New York, it was, they just, they were very late to shut down um, bars and restaurants and to enact social distancing and nobody was wearing masks. So right. what happens is your hospitals get overwhelmed. And so if that were to happen here, if we said no precautions, just let it go, go about your day and let it run crazy. Well, yeah. now suddenly you guys may have 15 people in the hospital. And now those people are going to die because not all of them, but some of them are going to die because yeah. there's just not enough people to take care of them. That's how that's where the balloon happens, well, right? No, I think I think that's really well said, and I think I think another piece to that too is is to the whole thing of overwhelming the healthcare system. It's not so much so if you say, well, but the but the but the mortality rate of, of COVID is so low, it really is not big of a deal. Well, okay, let's just accept that as a, a as an argument for a second. Well, what we're talking about, what I'm talking about more than that is people that come in with strokes, heart attacks, things that are otherwise preventable and easily treatable. They're going to die because the health system is overwhelmed, and and so now does that that does not equate to well, to save the health system, we should shut everything down. Not at all. You know, um, I think the the big thing is that there is pretty good pretty good science out there that that supports the fact that that uh, even with the imperfect, even with masks not being a perfect solution, and the, there's there's you know if anyone tries to tell you that there's hard science that masks are perfect, they're wrong. You know, but I think the big thing is there's pretty good data out there that suggests that if 80 percent of people would just wear masks, you know, over the course of a number of weeks. We would drop this thing to almost nothing because all all a virus lives for is to propagate. And if you take away that route of propagation, it's going to go away. You know, and even if it doesn't go away, you'll you'll get it to such a low point that when it does flare up, you can instantly go and stamp out that fire. You know, as opposed to dealing with huge outbreaks or dealing with more widespread. And that's how you get back to living without masks and that sort of thing. So I think people that say, well, what about herd immunity? I say, you know what? If you want to do herd immunity, let's just challenge you. Let's all wear a mask for you know, a month and see what happens, you know? So yeah. I mean, kind of, uh, and when you look at the mortality rate, cause a lot of people focus on that and, you know, I was just, because I'm a history dork, I was reading a, a book on the Horseshoe Island and in, yeah. in one of the later passages in that book, they talk about how one of the women who lived there, um, one of the Folda family members caught the Spanish flu in 1918 and lived with the effects of that for the rest of their life and yeah. was compromised for the rest of their life. So that is another thing that, that people have to consider is like, it's not just mortality rate. It's, it's the other effects that it has. It's the economic downwind effects of like we talked about with shutting down restaurants or businesses and impacting other people's lives. But yeah, you also have to look at the mortality rate is what it is now. And we've done a great job of dropping it, but that is with almost no visiting of old folks in old folks' homes, no visiting grandma and hugging grandma, um, no going into the hospice centers for a long time, um, reduced visitation and access to hospitals, um, shut down schools, we're wearing masks, we're socially distanced, we're avoiding crowds, we're not having any of our festivals, we're not having any large events or concerts, and we're all washing our hands better than we ever have in our lives. <laughs> um, so we've eliminated all these other things, and that's how we've gotten... That's and now we've got the, the mortality rate down, um, still not to the flu level, but down from like where it was much higher early on. Yep. And some people are looking at that like you can't you can't look at that and say like, oh, it's not the same mortality rate. Like we've never approached any, any disease like this either. So now if you open it back up to those early days, like where is that mortality rate? It's probably not as high as it was then because we're we know more, but it's yep. not as low as it is now either. So no. 
that's a really good thought. I mean, I, I really honestly, I haven't even considered it that way because, I've, you know, my mind, I find that my mind is spinning most days. But uh, no, I think that's a really, really good point and, and, uh, and, and very true. And, and I think a lot of the pushback that we get is I think there are those that, that uh, and I probably would be one of them, and there are those that sort of feel like, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we way overreacted by closing everything down. And I think, you know, I, and I think we probably did overreact. I think closing the schools was not the best idea. But you know what? That's easy for me to say now with 2020. You know, right. so to say that somebody did the wrong thing, that's that's not that's not correct or I don't like the word fair, but that's not fair. I mean, you know, we, we, we had no idea what was coming, you know, so so it's, uh, you know, I, we, we know more now. So I, I often say I don't believe we'd ever have to close the economy back down again. I think there's other things we could do to continue to mitigate without doing that, because there's all kinds of downstream effects that you mentioned, some of the most important ones, not being able to live, visit our loved ones in a nursing home. They're not prisoners in their nursing homes. Um, mental health with kids. You know, there's so many kids in, in our community that are on the, that are uh, on uh, food assistance programs in schools. And so closing schools is a horrible, you know, is, is, is a horrible perspective from that, that, you know, that, that point of view. So there's all kinds of things we have to think about. Yeah, I look back to that closing things down. And I was in a lot of these discussions, I would go to school board meetings where they talked about the precautions they were taking to stop the spread. And as I'd be in those meetings, I'd, they weren't taking the very precautions they were talking about. So I was, I'm like, yeah. all right, they need to stop and figure this out. I did not think that necessarily we needed to close it for the rest of the year. But at, at that time, I think almost, you know, bars weren't giving it any thought about doing things more safely. Restaurants weren't at all. Um, even it was, there was a time in this early on where I called some of the um, senior care facilities and said, are you changing visitor restrictions at all? And they said, no, nah, we haven't done anything like that. And then you know, within like 48 hours, we were getting messages nonstop of no more visitors, we're shutting it down. And we needed, and, and in talking to, to Brian Stevens, your CEO at Door County Medical Center, said they, yeah. you know, they needed time to change policies, examine what was the best way to handle things. How do, how, if we got an influx of COVID patients, how would we separate them from the general population and make sure we weren't infecting other people um, and keeping it contained? And you guys, I mean, we, we did a podcast earlier about this. You, you yeah. transitioned an old wing of the hospital into a, right. a COVID unit. And that takes time. That doesn't just happen overnight. Exactly. Exactly. Now I, we're, we're, we're in decent shape here in Door County. Um, you know, we, we've, we have not had the effects of Green Bay and I, you know, we're, we're looking to do what we can to, to mitigate that or to stop that from happening and hoping that if it does happen, we're set for it. Um, last couple things, maybe informational. Uh, Let's talk about the, the basic flu vaccines right now. I know there's a lot of flu clinic, uh, flu shot clinic opportunities coming up. I won't ask you to give us a full rundown on those, but what can you say about people and the need to get the flu vaccine this year? I think, you know, it's always, it's always a good idea. It's always important that you get vaccinated uh, for the flu. And I think this year, more so than ever, because I think if you come in, especially knowing that all these, these symptoms are so similar, if you come in with symptoms of the flu, if we know you've gotten the flu vaccination, that at least helps us a little bit go down a road. Now, vaccines are never 100%. There, you know, we say that a lot in medicine. Nothing is perfect, but that really helps us to sort of sort out what's going on. Hmm. Um, so, uh, if any year is, an, I mean, every year is important, but this year more than ever, get those flu vaccines. 
And then um, is there any update on a potential National Guard testing, um, coming up to Door County and doing a mass testing again, like we've done a couple of times? The last one was in late August, kind of before this big surge. But uh, I've heard some talk about possibly the National Guard coming in and doing some targeted things. What's the status of that? And where would people go to find out when that, if that happens? I suspect that I, I've heard that as well, and I don't have any more specific information than that. Um, I think I, I suspect that it will happen because Green Bay really is. I mean, you know, it's one of those things when you've got doctors in Green Bay on CNN, and I know the the, the, the Good Morning America truck is out in front of St. Mary's in Green Bay this morning. So when you have that, we, we really are sort of the epicenter of the country right now. So I fully suspect that there will be some National Guard support coming up and, and doing some mass testing. So just, just keep your eye, keep your ears 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 uh, out there and, and keep listening and keep reading. And, and uh, you know, if, if I had more information, I'd give it to you. But I, I just don't know when that's when or if that's going to happen. But I would suspect it will. Okay. Uh, Dr. Heiss, anything else uh, you wanted to leave people with um, before we let you go? Nope. I just, uh, other than, you know, wear, wear those masks, try and stay six feet apart from people and, and wash your hands. Those are the three relatively simple things we can do and, and uh, we can continue to get through this. All right, Dr. Heiss, thanks for all you and your staff are doing. And thanks for joining us today and, and sharing some information with our listeners. Thank you, Miles. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.